This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Welcome, welcome, my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. Ah, uh, can never help myself. Anyway, we're going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country and I pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, if you're ready, let's flap and do this. <laughs> oh God, is there such thing as too many vagina jokes in the one intro? <laughs> Whatever, I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull up the couch. It's the Labia Lounge. Hey, labial loonies. Happy Menopause Awareness Month. Um, at least I hope I'll be able to get my shit together in time to release this while it's still within the month. But today, in recognition of this, I'm doing another menopause-focused epi, and I've got my dear friend and Labia Lounge's resident Chinese med practitioner and women's health specialist, Joanna McMeekin, with me today to shed some light and give some helpful tips and insights. So welcome back, Joanna. Thank you for having me. I love I love your podcast. I love everything about it. <laughs> I love having you. What is this, the third time you've been on? I think so. Labia Lounge. Ooh. Ho. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Such a pro. You're like alumni, whatever. Is, is that even the correct use of that word? It's so American. I don't even know. <laughs> I guess that's when you graduate out of something. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you're like, you're like an honorary member. You've been been on so time, so many times. Anyway, um, so to just prep everyone, I would highly recommend going back and listening to my other episodes surrounding this topic because they're absolute rippers. If you haven't heard them, scroll back, find one called Your Sex Life Isn't Over Once You Hit Menopause with Heidi True. And then there's another epic episode with Jane Hardwick Collings called Menopause, A Misunderstood Mystery. Um, and in those episodes, we cover more about you know, the emotional and the energetic aspects of menopause and perimenopause and how we navigate the transitions um, and work with these stages rather than against them. We talk about the attitudes towards menopause and the beliefs and narratives that kind of cause us to dread and revile, you know, this really potent rite of passage that it actually can be. And so, you know, we reframe how to see and understand menopause. We debunk a bunch of myths about it, including about libido and sex. Um, and they're some of my favorite episodes. So yeah, they'll provide a really great basis of knowledge and understanding, which we're going to kind of assume today that you've already got um, because we're going to dive in um, in today's episode to more like the physical aspects, what's happening inside your body hormonally with your liver, your nervous system, um, 
We'll chat about some practical methods of managing the changes that your body goes through so that it doesn't have to be just this negative or challenging experience that it kind of gets um, marketed as, um, or at least minimize some of the more unpleasant parts that can occur and understand them better. So, we're also going to chat about how menopause can impact your relationships and partnerships and then how to navigate this, especially in a marriage um, and whatever else comes up. So, yeah, does that sound like a bit of a vibe, Jojo? It does sound like a vibe and I would say, uh, you know, more than a recommendation, like you you have to. You have to go and listen to those other episodes because they were actually – I reached out to you about this topic and that was kind of what I, what you covered really with the, in the podcast with Jane was what I wanted to talk about. Um, and so when, when you said, yeah, let's hook it up, I thought I'll go and check out what you guys have already spoken about and catch up on a few episodes that I was behind on. And when I listened to it, it was such a perfect episode. You guys covered it so beautifully. <laughs> Jane's like such a fountain of knowledge in that area. Yeah. And so I mm-hmm. think before you listen to this one, you need to go back and listen to it because everybody needs to listen to that one anyway. <laughs> and, and then yeah, when, when I was thinking, all right, well, given that the groundwork has been covered, which we'll touch on, I mean, we will touch on briefly kind of the, yeah. um, the core of the reframe around menopause, mm-hmm. but then this episode, we can talk more about practical strategies. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Nice. I was totally riddled with goosebumps for like most of my chat with Jane. It was just such an epic episode and yeah, she's pretty incredible. I was very like, oh my God, she agreed to be on my podcast. Um, (laughs) So yeah, definitely listen to that, you suckers. Um, All right. So before we get into the practical tactics and strategies, I'd love you to share quickly about um, what you told me from Chinese medicine perspective, like around menopause being the second spring, because like I really loved that. And it's worth mentioning because it really aligns with the views that are put forward in those other two menopause episodes. Yeah, I think Jane actually actually me- mentions it specifically. So the second spring is this idea pretty it's not that cryptic that puberty is the first spring right so you go from Mm -hmm. being a little girl and you blossom like the flowers do in spring into a woman and in fact the menstrual blood in Chinese medicine it's called the Tiangue I think which is probably a terrible pronunciation but it translates as (laughs) heavenly waters so it has like a really yeah it has like a really spiritual um, understanding a really spiritual sort of meaning as well. It's not just, it's, it's not considered blood in the same way that we consider, mm. you know, blood in the rest of the body. So it's mm. uh, this, this idea that puberty is this special time, this transitional time. And so too is menopause. And it's given the honor of being the opportunity for a woman to return back to herself. And I think, again, Jane talked about it in the other episode that estrogen is the hormone of, I think she said service and sacrifice. Is that what she, do you remember? That Something like that. That estrogen is the hormone of service and sacrifice. And the reason that it, it provides the uh, motivation to do that is because, being in a family unit is good for is good for our species, survival of the species. It's also richly rewarding, you know, having children and nurturing and being in a family. But there comes a time where your children grow up and don't need you in that capacity anymore. And then all of that emotion, emotional energy, physical energy, everything that you've been putting back into the family, child rearing, you know, um, 
I want to say like keeping the half fires burning, but obviously I'm not I'm not pigeonholing people in tradi- to traditional gender roles or anything there. But you know, that, <laughs> that whole mothering aspect, you're able to then come back around and sort of turn that energy back to yourself and be like, oh, oh yeah, I had hobbies. <laughs> what were the hobbies that I used to want to do? And you have um, an opportunity to then live. We talk as well about the three stages. So you've got like the girl the little girl and then you become a woman and then you become a wise woman and there's sort of three thirds of your life and Mm. that final third you can go into that with all of the knowledge and wisdom gained in the first two thirds so really the third innings can be like the best yet but Mm. we have this cultural narrative that after 30 oh it's all downhill. Line and decay. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly, Chinese medicine talks about, you know, it's based on, on yin and yang. And so men are more yang to begin with. Yang pertains to the masculine and women are more yin to begin with. And so as you start to decline in these two vital essences, men will show more signs of yang deficiency and women will show more signs of yin deficiency. And so that's where that kind of this idea of dryness comes into it, you know, mm. because yin relates to the fluids and the blood and nighttime mm. and the moon. And, and uh, it's, you know, this is where we do sort of see these signs of yin deficiency in women with drying of the skin, drying of the hair, hot flushing, um, you know, drying mm. of the tissues. But it's not a fait accompli. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that, oh, well, then, you know, once you hit 30, you just a dried up, sad old woman ready to be put out on the trash heap, which I think, you know, is kind of the predominant message in our culture and it really, yeah. really pisses me off. And that's why I really liked that episode of you and Jane because I was just listening to it. I was like, yes, yes, what she says. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, cool. Okay, so then um, you also described it as like the second puberty. Is that Reverse good? Oh, no, puberty. Not that's the second my- puberty, yeah. Yeah, that's my nickname puberty. for it, reverse puberty. Because I think if we saw it as a reverse puberty, that's again, it's it's trying to find ways that people can reframe in their mind. Because when you go through puberty, no one's like, oh gosh, they're not a little girl anymore. How terrible! They must be useless, mm. you know. <laughs> so what's happening through menopause is you're just transitioning out of that fertile time in your life. And the other thing is, we give mm. teenagers and you know pubertal beings, we give them a bit of grace. You know, we're like, oh, you know what teenagers are like. If they if they snappy or ragey or moody or depressed, we're like, yeah, you know, puberty's hard. Like, it's a lot going puberty on. Puberty blues. Yeah, hundred percent. So we have this like innate understanding that teenagers and pubertal beings need like need some support and need some grace and need some kindness. Doesn't give mm. them carte blanche permission to be a jerk, but <laughs> you know, we do sort of tend to <laughs> tend to recognize that that there's a lot of upheaval going on. And so when you categorize menopause and perimenopause and menopause as this reverse puberty, it sort of is like you you realize it's the same sort of thing. It's just the other end of that journey. So, you know, women really do find themselves returning in a lot. Some women, you know, I'm not going to say everybody because some women just sail through, you know, like they, they don't get any symptoms. It's really easy. Uh, You know, it's certainly not everybody's journey, but, not all women. So those that those that do experience signs and symptoms during the no, I see, I'm rambling now. But Jane said another really good thing, which was she didn't like this this word symptoms. 
So I'm trying to change my language around that because she's right. It's not a symptom of menopause. It's an experience of menopause because menopause isn't Mm -hmm. a disease. It's a natural process that it looks like we evolved into. And again, I'll touch on what Jane spoke about uh, because it's something I talk about a lot in clinic is that there are two ways of looking at menopause. And I think a lot of the doctors that are out there promoting uh, modern day hormone replacement therapy, which is called MHT or menopausal hormone therapy, also called bio-identical hormone therapy or body-identical hormone therapy. It's no reason, it's no wonder people are confused. <laughs> but they sort of talk about it in in the way of their feelings towards menopause are that we are now living longer only because of modern medicine. So we're going through our menopause earlier and we're living longer. So when you speak to some of the doctors, they're like, well, we would be dead you know, by our 50s, you menstruate right up until your 50s and then your average life expectancy was only about then anyway. So you'd be dead and you wouldn't have to worry about menopause. So they consider that menopause is this modern condition that we have purely because Western medicine is keeping us alive longer. No, I don't really agree with that. Yeah, (laughs) because I think we can find evidence of menopause in plenty of cultures before modern medicine was what it is today. And so it looks, if you speak then to the evolutionary biologists, it looks as though we evolved into menopause because the species did better when we were supported by the wisdom of the elder women. And Jane talks Mm. about, you know, the whales, it's us and the whales go through menopause. And they found that the pods, the whale pods were those matriarchal whales that were no longer reproducing. They became leaders in the whale pods and then those whale pods did better. And so there's an evolutionary advantage, who'd have thought, to having wise women in leadership roles. (laughs) Yeah, so beautiful. And, yeah, I like that it's tricky to – stop saying I kept I kept sort of wanting to say like symptoms but then I'm like hang on a sec it's not even symptoms of menopause so much as um of lifestyle factors like a lot of the things that people see as symptoms that uh you know that menopause is responsible for actually like you said some women sail through and like my mom you know she was just super healthy exercised a lot eats really well she had such a chill time um and there weren't a lot of those symptoms because her lifestyle was supporting you know healthy liver healthy nervous system all of this um and so I feel like they're more lifestyle um, factors that are creating symptoms that then menopause, you know, gets blamed for um, just because, yeah, we can't get away with having certain lifestyle factors anymore because we're not young and we don't have the hormonal support to just sort of like, yeah, I guess get through some some kind of um, not so healthy behaviours. How do you feel about that? Oh, there's a whole lot of bullshit you can pull in your 20s and 30s that you cannot get away with in your 40s. And (laughs) I think that's another thing that I talk about in my work is that, you know, your hormonal health really is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I think uh, there is some evidence to suggest that ovulation, (laughs) you want to talk about this stuff now because I've been in the work for so long, same as you. I feel like every sentence that I say should just have like, uh, on the end of it because it's so obvious. (laughs) But who would have thought? Not to everyone. Yeah, but who would have thought that regular healthy ovulation and exposure to your body's naturally cycling hormones would have a benefit to you over the lifespan? (laughs) We're Mm -hmm. seeing that women who have, um, who've been on the pill, for example, 
it's it's likely that they will have a rougher time heading into menopause than someone who's never been on the pill because they didn't have that disruption Mm -hmm. to their natural hormones and they had the beneficial exposure to progesterone for longer, Mm -hmm. which seems to uh, ease the transition into menopause. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, the the way we talk about women's bodies has been so medicalized. It it's, it's frustrating mm-hmm. but uh yeah you need to it's, it's difficult in my line of work to get a 20 year old interested in her hormonal health because it'll make an easier transition to menopause you know like that's it's not oh, really totally. relevant she she's yeah. looking to get rid of um migraines or breast pain or really heavy periods or the or, or maybe she wants to con- control i'm doing air quotes control when her period is coming because she's traveling you know mm. i know plenty of young girls that were on the pill and they're like oh i'm just going to skip yeah. my period this month because i'm going to thailand i'm like first of all it's not a yeah. period uh yeah. so, <laughs> it's very difficult to kind of get that message to land because i don't know about you but when i was 20 i thought 40 was basically dead <laughs> now that i'm now that i'm 42 i'm like oh <laughs> oh totally so, Everything that we do on a day-to-day basis is having an impact on the future, us, hormonally speaking, but of course, everything, everything speaking, but hormonally speaking, there's a really strong connection there. So one of the ways probably what helped your mum have such a smooth transition is that she was going in with hormones that were relatively stable in the way they interplayed. You know, that interplay was set up in the right ratio so that when everything inevitably dropped, it's dropping in the right ratio. Like, I'm, again, I'm doing like hand movements that listeners can't see. But, you know, if you've got one hand sitting on top of the other and that's estrogen and that's progesterone, when the total levels drop, the ratio kind of remains the same, similar. So the, the relative fluctuation is not felt as drastically as if you already have sky high estrogen. I've just made my hands bigger apart. And then the estrogen remains stable, but the progesterone drops, which is step one in, in menopause. Mm. So now I've got this big gap between my hands. And then what else can happen in menopause is the estrogen can elevate. So now I've got one hand way up above my head and the other one's down, you know, near my belly button. Mm. So mm. it's important to go into that menopausal transition with things in the right sort of ratios to try and smooth out that reverse puberty ride that we get. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, my mum never took the pill or anything like that. If if you guys haven't listened to the other episode Joanna and I did about the contraceptive pill, go back and listen to that. you got heaps of homework for this one. There's a lot of like um, prerequisite learning. But yeah, that pill episode was fucking kick-ass and just, yeah, so jam-packed with really relevant stuff. And it's all very interconnected, you know, and Jane talks about this. It's like each transitional stage is a rite of passage and the way that you kind of um, – the way that you cycle through your menstrual cycle, the way that you give birth, the way that you go through menopause, they're all very connected. Um, and it's so tough to get people invested. In, it's like that classic experiment where like, you're like, do you want one M&M now or like five M&Ms in 10 minutes? And everyone's like, give me the M&M now. And it's like, yeah, we just don't give a it's a bit of a like you know I'll sleep when I'm dead attitude it's like we're invincible we're young we can get away with like fucking our bodies sideways at this age and we'll deal with it later and like as you get older you start just like I'm getting this rising sense of panic that I like didn't do the right thing and I'm not able to get away with it anymore and I'm just like okay like really have and I've been 
pretty bloody healthy, honestly. I'm very grateful with myself uh, for for the fact that I've always been quite health focused and quite invested in my health. I never, you know, really burnt the candle at both ends or had a huge like bender drug taking phase or anything. I've always been quite responsible. But still, there's a lot of things that, you know, even right now that I'm thinking, fuck, I really, really should be doing better at because I'll know about it. I mean, I'm already feeling it. So yeah. And, um, and just like taking care of your body and, and doing protective things now that are really going to ease your transition later. Super important, but difficult to, difficult to care about when it's not like relevant to you immediately, you know? But I think that you've, you just segued really nicely into, I made some notes for this episode because I know you and I tend to like, whoa, just ride the wave, a free flowing conversation. <laughs> so I made some notes to keep myself honest. And that's something that, um, I wanted to talk about, which is that the skills that we should start chatting about now in terms of regulating that nervous mm. system and how to look after your liver. They're skills that you learn now, or you learn you learn them when you learn them. And I think, um, you know, you could always look back and be like, oh, I could have done that better. And it's interesting hearing you say, I didn't, you know, I wasn't on the pill for long or I didn't have a big party. So I did, and I was. (laughs) (laughs) I committed to that shit. So, you know, but I can't change that, and that will have had the impact that it has had. What I also have are some very good stories to tell, right? So I don't regret I don't regret any of the things that I've done in life because I wouldn't be who I am without them. So I think it's not a super helpful path. And if your listeners are thinking, oh my God, I've been on the pill for 15 years and I'm doomed, it doesn't work like that, first of all, because you hear we in that episode on the pill, we talked a lot about some of the things that can go wrong. But equally, I know people who were on the pill, I'm one of them. I was on the pill for 10 years, came off the pill, got my period immediately on the next full moon. And still had a very light period. So stupid me was like, oh, well, you know, I probably don't have a healthy enough cycle to nourish a developing fetus at this point. So I'll need to work on fertility. And as a consequence, wasn't super careful with contraception with my now husband, but that's how (laughs) my first child was conceived. So, you know, we do talk about it can go wrong and it does. And I see plenty of that in clinic, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that you've signed certificate if you've um, you've done these things in the past so but the important thing for nervous system work is it's a practice it's a skill like so many other things and it's better to learn and develop those skills find out what you enjoy doing find out what works for you and begin to perfect I want to say perfect them but nothing in life is perfect begin to improve them and and gain those skills when shit is not going sideways, because once you are in the thick of it, learning to sit and meditate is going to be the last thing you, you want to do, you know, <laughs> because it's hard even when things are fine. Meditation makes you crazier before it makes you calmer. Um, <laughs> so with nervous system training, and I guess we can kick off talking about meditation because that's one of the um, most common ones. I don't and think just to, um, just to give context, this is, this is related to menopause because this is like a really great kind of, uh, practice to be in to manage nervous system stuff, which is impacted in menopause. Yeah. So I think again, listen to the other episodes, but, uh, <laughs> what happens in your body during menopause is your ovaries, which have been responsible 
for the majority of your reproductive hormone production, they go into retirement. So they're like, this is what perimenopause is. They're basically knowing that they're about to retire. So they're spending most of their days at the office searching the internet for like good retirement destinations. How much can I live on <laughs> each month in Cabo, Mexico? You know, <laughs> they're looking up crochet patterns on the, on the, on the internet and the boss, which is the brain is like, Hey, I want that report. I need that report. That boss just wants them to keep working the way that they used to work. And the ovaries are like, oh, you know, I'm nearly going to retire, right? So some months they'll work and they'll produce the hormones in the right levels. And then, you know, you can ovulate and get a, a period. And other months they're like, just talk to the adrenal system. You know, talk to the cells. They can synthesize their own estrogen. I'm leaving. <laughs> so once you do go through menopause and your ovaries go into retirement, your body will take over production of estrogen, but in a lot lower levels, in a lot lower levels, is that English? At lower levels than, than the ovaries used to produce. But your adrenal system will, aka nervous system, will take over and your the cells of your body learn to synthesize their own estrogen as well, which means they, they make their own estrogen. So let's say you're, you have receptors for estrogen all over your body. And this is part of the reason why you do get these experiences in menopause um, of dry eyes, achy joints, for example, because you have cells with receptor sites for estrogen in your eyes and in your joints. And when they don't get their fix, that's when you get these, these, these indications where they are ultimately able to learn how to produce their own, but they're, they're not doing it yet. So if your nervous system is busy punching out cortisol because you're stressed, you're not managing your stress, you're not learning how to move between a stressed state and into a not stressed state. So there's that flexibility. You don't want to turn your nervous system, your sympathetic nervous system off because we have stress all day, every day in our life. And it's not even necessarily negative stress. And again, we talked about that on the pill episode. Stress is sort of framed as a negative thing, but it's not it can be a very helpful thing, but the ability to move from that nervous system state into the parasympathetic, more calm state easily and at will is what you can train. And it's meditation is one really quick way that you can do that. And then for people that don't like meditation, there's some incredibly nifty breath work that's around these days, which my very favorite one, which I teach to everyone is the 478 breathing technique. So if you need to give your nervous system a break from churning out stress hormones so that it can think about producing estrogen, then a really good way to do that is to have this breathwork practice. And 478 breathing is really simple. It's just you inhale for a count of four, hold your breath for a count of seven, and then you exhale audibly, sort of constricting the back of your throat for a count of eight. So it sounds like someone I know who teaches it in the context of Tantra, she calls it sexy Darth Vader breathing. <laughs> it goes, so in through your nose, hold, and then, you know, that kind of. Oh, we can't hear that Darth in the mic. Oh, like Ujjayi breath? Like in, in yoga, they would call it Ujjayi breath, like oceanic breath where that back of the throat's constricted slightly. So it's just a little bit more like. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like Darth Vader. Is yeah, that kind of what Darth we're Vader. going for? Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, and and that that audible constriction at the back of the throat is really important. So, if you've never done any breath work before, you can start with four 
444. Nice. You know, so okay. you go in for a count. That's called box breathing. So you can, you breathe in for four, hold for four, exhale for four, and then hold for four, and then inhale for four, hold mm-hmm. for four, exhale for four. Uh, and again, with it, with any skill, you start small, you build up. Maybe you only want to do one or two rounds of it because you don't want to wind up feeling lightheaded or passing out. Don't do it while you're driving, while you're learning about it, you know, mm-hmm. but I think. There isn't really a hack for meditation. People have to talk about meditation hacks, and I think it's not something you can you can replace. But it's also difficult for people who have busy lives, and this is another thing that we're going to cover in this conversation, is when you're in your 40s, you've got kids, you've got a job, you've got parents that are starting mm. to get older, you've got friends, and tragedy starts to come into your life. You know, like mm. I lost a, a, a very good friend of mine. Her husband was tragically killed last week in a car accident. You know, these these things sort of start happening in your 40s. Pe- people get diagnosed mm. with cancer and, and mm. so there's all this stuff going on and it can be very difficult to sit down and be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to learn meditation now. But if you've got this simple technique, it's sort of an, a next best thing, I think. Do you have any favorite mm. like nervous system tools that you like to use? Hey, babe town. So sorry to interrupt, but I simply had to pop my head into the lounge here and mention another virtual lounge that you've got to get around. It's the Labia Lounge Facebook group that I've created for listeners of the potty to mingle in. And there you'll find extra bits and bobs like freebies or discounts for offerings from guests who've been interviewed on the podcast, inspiring and thought-provoking conversations, and support from a community of labial legends. So head over to the links in the show notes and I'll hopefully see you in there. And now, back to the episode. Um, I think little, little moments of breath work when I'm feeling super agitated or I'm recognizing that I'm like pretty dysregulated. I just love a bit of yoga. I love a bit of massage. I love like walking in nature or a swim in a natural body of water. Like all of those things are pretty great for the nervous system, but it just depends what you have access to day to day. So I feel like the most accessible one and easy, quick, people can do it anywhere is like either breath work or meditation. I find it fucking hard to stick to a meditation practice, but I think like you're saying, like it's important to get into the habit and have these practices established before shit hits the fan and you really need them and that's kind of like everyone's always saying that it's like establish the habits and you know be familiar with these practices before you think you need them because when you need them you are not going to have the spoons to bring a new habit or establish a new practice you know you'll be in survival mode um behind me i'm really good i and this is what I do. A lot of my work is actually workshopping with um, the women that that come to me. How can we make it fit your life? Because I love, I love on like Instagram, and you see a twenty year old influencer, health influencer. No, I'm not throwing shade either. I think it's great, but she's like, I do slow mornings, and I'm like, no, oh, that's cute. Like, you don't have version, kids, babe. <laughs> my version of a slow morning is if my daughter who wakes up every morning on the stroke of six, if she sleeps until 10 past six before she kicks my door in and walks in fully dressed, like like halfway through a conversation, she's a morning person, uh, which is which is great. But, yeah, so um, car meditation is one that I've come up with in my work, mm-hmm. which is where you're always – I really like working the car because I think people – 
feel that their car is their safe space. It's a really, yeah. you know, it's, nice. it's a small environment where you've got your tunes pumping, you know, like, yeah, so yeah, yeah. they feel quite, yeah. quite happy and safe in their cars. So one thing you can do um, before when you're transitioning, so transitioning in and out of work, so it doesn't even have to be kid-related. Uh, a lot of people, I'll talk to them about getting home from the office and before you walk in the door and then your partner's like, hey, how was your day? And you're like, just give me a minute and then a fight ensues. You take that minute in your car, you just put one song on. It doesn't even have to be like pan flutes and whales. It can be anything, any song that you like, right? It's better if it's more relaxing than you know, we don't really want <laughs> friends or Rom or anything going on, but um, it can just be a nice song that makes you happy. And for the duration mm. of that song, breathe in through your nose, hold, breathe mm. out, repeat, just for the duration mm. of that song. And then before you know it, you're doing five minutes of meditation a day. And then you'll be like, oh, wow, I feel really good after that. And then that motivates you. So mm. on the way to work, before you get out of your car and go into the office, you do a car meditation and then if after you have a stressful meeting and you go back to the office and now we're all, you know, a lot of people are still working from home, but before you leave the office part of your house and go into the main part of your house, pop a song on. Yeah. Car meditation. Totally. Yeah. I love a bit of a body scan as well. Like just a a bit of a, like getting somatically aware of, of the different parts of my body. And that kind of helps just draw my focus and attention inwards. And that can be quite calming for the nervous system. Um, so, okay, beautiful. What are some other things that, you know, we can do to, I don't want to say combat, but like work with and navigate the physical changes that are happening in our body to kind of just like make it more of a smooth experience. I'm checking my notes. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we had with, with nervous system training, you mentioned all the kind of other ones I had behind breath work. I would say if you had to pick one, if people like, I don't have time for all these things, what's the most important one? I would say breath work. Because as you say, okay. it's something that you can do anywhere. Uh, but journaling, also very good if, if that floats your boat. Exercise, of course. Oh, what I say? Breathwork over exercise. Mm. Mm. I consider exercise a separate category. <laughs> mm. And you're so, kind of breathing more deeply when you exercise anyway, you know. like they can Well, that depends if you know how to breathe diaphragmatically. You'd be surprised the number of people I have to consult mm. with who don't know how oh. to breathe diaphragmatically. So they're exercising and they're only breathing into their chest so yeah because a lot of people are so tight through their thoracics into costalis because we do that shallow nervous breathing that you do when you're in fight or flight so so yeah no I stand by I stand by breath work breath work will uh so start with that breath work practice start practicing car meditation and or four seven eight breathing I mean you can do four seven eight breathing as your car meditation and then I think I'd like to talk about insulin resistance because that's a really important Mm. one, particularly in perimenopause, because we naturally become more insulin resistant during that time. And there are some things that you can do to help combat that, which are just lifestyle changes. So one of the, one of the big things in perimenopause that I think people say the top three in perimenopause and menopause, when I say, what do you find hardest is Weight gain, hot flushes, and insomnia tend to be the three, the mm. top three that I hear about. Okay. And I think of all of those, weight gain has the most negative emotion associated with it. 
And a lot yeah. of the time this is due to that insulin resistance that develops. So some practical Why tips. does that develop? Why is there more insulin resistance in perimenopause and menopause? Mm, estrogen, I'm just going to say simply because you know what a nerd I am and it can get very complicated very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. there's the way, you know, estrogen kind of helps with glucose uptake in the liver and, yeah, so the very broad oh, answer to that is it's down to the declining <laughs> levels of estrogen yet again. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I'm sure there, if an immunologist was listening, they'd be like, it's more complicated than that, and it is, and that's why. We'll just say it's down to the hormonal fluctuations yet again. Uh, estrogen is estrogen is a is a heavy hitter in the body. You know, it's mm. referred to as chocolate for the brain by some specialists. Like the brain loves estrogen so much. Yeah, it's like wow. chocolate for the brain. Yeah. Um, so insulin resistance for very quickly for people that don't not super familiar with it is when you eat something as part of that digestive process, your pancreas has to secrete insulin to keep your blood sugar at a stable level. And if anybody has a diabetic friend, then they'll know that if your blood sugar is not stable um, or if your blood sugar climbs dangerously high, you can actually die. You can go into a coma and, and die. So mm. it's, a, it's a big deal. That's why diabetics have to have, you know, medication mm. and, and insulin to otherwise they'll die. So when you are insulin resistant, your pancreas is secreting insulin, but your body's not kind of registered, it's not really able to uptake and use the insulin in the way that it used to. So then your pancreas starts pumping out more and more of it, and then this can lead to uh, pretty significant issues unchecked. One of them is weight gain. Of course, the kicker is not everybody who is insulin resistant has weight gain and not everybody who is gaining weight has insulin resistance, of course, but it is very common. Uh, and left untreated and unmanaged, it can progress into quite serious conditions like cardiovascular disease. And yeah, so it is something that you want to be aware of. And you can check it on a blood test. Um, you, you know, your doctor or functional medicine practitioner will be able to check fasting blood glucose. And they'll also take a look at something called um, HbA1c. So yeah, but is there, you, is it, um, is it, and this might be totally off base, is it, kind of safe to say that in menopause the weight gain is most commonly due to insulin resistance or is there a whole lot of other factors that are kind of creating a predisposition towards weight gain in menopause it's very common i'll say that that insulin resistance is very is a very common driver of that weight gain but it's not the only thing so we when as we age we we're losing a percentage of our muscle mass year on year the older we get, which yeah. is why weight training is super important. And we'll talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, just as there's no downside to meditation, there is no downside to learning to lift weights and doing weight bearing exercise, mm-hmm. but you start to lose your muscle mass. And yeah. that means that because lean muscle burns more calories at rest than adipose tissue mm-hmm. or fat tissue. So mm-hmm. if you, ha- you and I both weigh 65 kilos or if you weigh 60 kilos and I weigh 70 kilos, but I have more muscle mass, I will be burning more calories at rest than you who has less muscle mass. So preserving muscle mass is important. That starts to decline and you guessed it because estrogen is anabolic. So it helps us to build muscle. (laughs) So as the estrogen declines, we start Mm -hmm. to lose that muscle. So we need to be preserving it by eating enough protein 
uh, and, and doing, you know, resistance training and some form of exercise. So that factors in mm. as well. And that's not just for women. Age related metabolic slowdown is across both men and women. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. so it is a, it is very common and it's one of the leading drivers, but of course it's not the only thing. Um, but interestingly, and I don't know if you will know about this, um, but insulin resistance is bad for clitoral sensitivity. Get out of town. No, I yeah, know. check your face out. Yeah. So if, if you have insulin resistance, the likelihood that you will have reduced sensation, clitoral sensation, there is a correlation there. So that's wow. another, you know, people re- report uh, decreased sexual satisfaction during that time of their life, which is very complicated. And we'll touch on that mm-hmm. as well. But, you know, reduced sensation and orgasm being harder to achieve is one of the reasons that people cite. Mm-hmm. So easy ways to, um, easy wins for insulin resistance, I should say, <laughs> is making sure you eat breakfast before mm-hmm. 10 a.m., and making sure that your breakfast contains 30 grams of crude protein is probably the most important thing I think that you can do. And then similarly, not eating late into the evening either. So fi- figuring out by six or seven, if you can stop eating, that is really beneficial because there is a relationship between melatonin and insulin. So as melatonin rises at the end of the day to help prepare us for sleep, it has an effect on the cells in the pancreas that secrete insulin. It sort of switches them off because, yeah, the body's starting to do that handover between active day processing, digesting, and then, you know, Mm -hmm. the things that it does for us in the nighttime when we sleep. So when we eat Mm -hmm. later into the night, we're asking our body to produce insulin when it's not really... It's not really designed to, yeah. so it has kind it's of like ready an impaired, for bed. Yeah. precisely. So it has an impaired ability mm. to perform that task. So mm. snacking late into the evening is not fantastic. So making sure you're eating mm. a protein-rich breakfast before 10 a.m. and then not eating and snacking on the couch late into the evening are two really good things that you can do to help combat insulin resistance. And then mm. making sure that each meal you eat has about 30 grams of protein in it, that sustained release throughout the day is also important. And um, what's that sort of the equivalent of like three eggs or like give us a couple of examples? Yeah, there's heaps of really nifty calculators out there. I'm going to go black ballpark for you because I can only remember a couple mm-hmm. off the top of my head. Yeah, but yeah. Lentils or chickpeas, you need about 250 grams to get about 30 grams of protein, whereas you'd need, as you say, about two or three eggs to get 30 grams of mm-hmm. protein. depends on the size of the egg. Yep. So white white fish, kangaroo can be pretty close gram for gram, um, gram of the of the substance to protein content. That's a very complicated way of saying what I was trying to say. So something people need to be aware of is that if you have a hundred grams of chicken, that's not a hundred grams of protein. A hundred grams yeah. of chicken yeah. breast probably has about thirty grams of protein in it. So when yep. you are getting your protein from plant sources, you need you're going to need to eat a lot more. Uh, so just be mindful of that. But there's, I mean, you can even just punch into Google, you know, protein content. Totally. Or, yeah, yeah, you can search it up pretty cool. easily. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Amazing. Okay, so I've covered the kind of like insulin resistance, weight gain. Like are there any other sort of, uh, mm, uh, are we more susceptible to any other particular diseases or things like that that we should be aware of? in menopause or shall we kind of move on to, I mean, I really want to talk about 
the common treatments and there's some quite medical ones which I'd love to hear your thoughts on like the hormone replacement therapy and DHEA and these sort of common ones um but I'm just going to let you like steer it if in case we've missed anything before we head there and this is why I had notes Freya (laughs) (laughs) because yeah there are so um Perimenopause is a classic time for the emergence of autoimmune conditions and it's because of Mm. reverse puberty. The body is restructuring itself and as a consequence it kind of opens the door for these things to start to flare up. Mm. So I'm going to answer that question very briefly, which is yes, keep an eye out for autoimmune conditions. That's things like thyroid Mm. disease, hypothyroid, hyper or hypothyroid disease. Uh, fibromyalgia, some people suggest, might actually be linked to the menopausal transition because, again, you see a lot of women in that in that age group. Um, gallbladder disease can be quite common at that time as well, so keeping an eye out for any signs of gallbladder issue, which some of the weird ones are like there's a pain behind the shoulder blade. You know, people have that, like, oh, it's, that's a referral pattern for, for gallbladder mm-hmm. pain. Um, and then, you know, one of the more obvious ones, of course, in menopause is osteoporosis. And that is down to yet again, the effect that estrogen has on the bones as well. And that's why weight training and making sure that you're, um, eating enough vitamin D, eating enough vitamin D, getting enough vitamin D through either (laughs) through supplementation. It is in some foods, but either through supplementation or safe, um, sun exposure, and um, a lot of people in that age bracket are on a calcium and, and vitamin D supplement. And I don't, yeah, I don't see any problem with that at all. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So before we wrap up, we'll definitely like give a few like tips and strategies to kind of uh, protect ourselves from these things. But right now, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the like classic like hormone replacement or the DHEA or the what's the other main you know these these things that um the medical system will usually throw at people through menopause like can they actually be helpful are they I mean I'm quite skeptical often of like how quickly we reach for pharmaceuticals and things like that what are your thoughts on the um these sorts of interventions for menopause so speaking of nervous system training, I've just taken several deep breaths so that I don't get shrill <laughs> because I think, um, you know, I, what I'm seeing is that there is a bit of a trend at the moment. I'll use that word. There's a trend at the moment of, no, I have to go back further than that. So old school hormone replacement therapy was pretty shit because it was not applied in a, in a beneficial way. It used a synthetic hormone that was made out of horse piss, the, the urine from pregnant mares, and it was given to women with who still had uteruses without any progesterone to balance the effect. And estrogen has a proliferative effect on the endometrial tissue, and what we saw was without that progesterone, that's the whole thing, right, the, the yin and yang, the body operates in balance. If you just give a woman with a uterus estrogen, the lining of her uterus will begin to thicken and grow and those cells will proliferate. And then in many cases, it turned into an endometrial cancer. It was linked to breast cancer as well. And so they were like, oh, well, hormone replacement therapy is super dangerous. We're not going to do it anymore. So now what we have is kind of a a reemergence of hormone therapy that uses products, pharmaceuticals, that have been synthesized from 
natural sources like yams. And when you look at them, the molecular structure of them, they are identical to the structure of your body's natural hormones. So with the synthetic hormones, they're not identical. They look so close that the body's like, ah, that's pretty close. That'll do. You know, and this is why xenoestrogens are able to be disruptive. So you've talked about that a lot in the work that you do, environmental toxins and fragrances are a classic one for having these compounds in them that look very much like your body's natural estrogen. And so your body encounters it and goes, oh, well, I'll use that. That's that's pretty similar, uh, but of course has disastrous consequences. Mm. So the hormone therapy that we use these days is identical to your body and so is much, much safer. But it's not, I believe, I'm sort of seeing a trend of it being put forward now in a similar way to I think we put the pill forward as like just mm. the cure for everybody. And it's super yeah, simple. Actual. Oh, you've got these, yeah. And and it's just like, oh, your natural hormones are declining. Well, we'll just give you your natural hormones again in the form of a patch or a gel mm. or, you know, just take those. Super safe, no problem, and you won't have to worry about it. But there's some issues with that. One, I want to say first of all as well that I'm actually a fan of hormone therapy for the right individual and I think that as part of a total healthcare plan, a holistic approach, that it's we should definitely be giving women this option because it can be nothing short of, you know, life-changing. And mm-hmm. not to downplay how serious things can get during reverse puberty. And I don't know if I have to add a trigger warning here, but um, I'll be mentioning death. You know, there are recorded cases of women who have thrown themselves off buildings because of their hormone. Yeah, because they went to their doctor and they said, I've got all these problems. Mm. And the doctor was like, oh, well, you're depressed. And she was like, I'm not depressed, but I'm not right. And it led to them taking their own life. Um, And Mm. I think, well, probably hormone replacement, menopausal hormone therapy might have been indicated, right, because there were these Mm. severe and debilitating implications to someone's mental health. Definitely get that shit in there. But then, you know, you need to work it as part of a total total health assessment, like you and I have been talking about, is she working 80 hours a week at the law firm? Does she have any support at home? Is she exercising? What's she eating? You know, Mm. we need to make sure that everything else Mm. is is in place as well. And then you can only, I think the current recommendation is to only be on these medications for about five years. Mm-hmm. So after five years, what what then? You know, if you haven't, yeah. if these products can be used as a way to soften the transition, mm-hmm. you know, but they're not something that you're going to take right up until the end of your life. And then mm-hmm. I also hear for, so testosterone is a great example. There's a lot of women in, you know, I'm pretty active in the Facebook groups in, in this age group, chatting to people, helping where I can, hearing what they're saying. And one thing that I hear a lot of is that their sex drive is completely tanked. And then, you know, people are like, oh, I get on the testosterone. It really worked for me. And that's great. But then for every 10 women that say testosterone was life-changing, you've got two or three that were like, well, I tried it and it was mm-hmm. horrible and I had to stop mm-hmm. it immediately. So it's not for everyone. Uh, nothing is yeah. for everyone. And then DHEA, that's a, that's, I think that's the one you were thinking of. That's a precursor to estrogen and testosterone. It's a pretty, it's pretty cool. It has anti-aging benefits. Um, and it can help with things like desire, arousal, possibly orgasm as well. So we, we sort of, you'll get prescribed DHEA and testosterone together often, but it comes with a host of side effects 
you know, or potential mm. side effects as well. So whilst it has the potential to be super helpful, it can also have so many side effects mm. as to negate, you know, the, the benefit yeah. that it brings. And I think we need to be very excited about this area of medicine, but also realistic about who it's for, how helpful it's going to be. Some women it does help, but it takes ages to get the, the dose right. You have to fiddle with the dose a bit. And then once you fiddled with the dose and got the dose right, then maybe the dose changes because, you know, this is a transition out of reproduction. So then, you know, you can just get stable and then plus supply and demand as well. So there's plenty of women I've spoken to who are like, I can't get my patch at the moment. I'm freaking out. I'm ready to fucking murder someone because they're falling off this cliff. You know, they've, they've been replacing the body's natural hormones and everything's been great. And then suddenly they can't get their script filled and bam, it's like no estrogen. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the, and the wow. bounce back from that is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like with all of this stuff, I see it as it's a tool and it's not for everyone and it's not for every situation or time, but um, it can be helpful. It just, it should be in my mind used as a last resort. Once you've exhausted all the other kind of more um, lifestyle related factors and, and natural kind of treatment um, approaches, because yeah, I just, I just feel like it's, it's, we reach for it way too quickly and it's used as a bit of a band-aid solution with a, you know, a lot of pharmaceuticals and things. So yeah, I suppose just making sure you're approaching it holistically and not shying away from using it and not shaming anyone that does need to use it, but knowing that it's not for everyone and it's not supposed to be a permanent solution. It's more of a bridge, um, to help ease the transition. Um, and that ideally like the goal is to not, not need it, I suppose. Um, yeah, would you kind of agree with that? I think you just summed that up beautifully. Mm, thank you. Okay, so I before wish, I we... wish I could speak with such concise accuracy rather than know, taking it's, everyone it's like... on such a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> it's very rare that I managed to nail such a succinct kind of uh, yeah wrap up, but um, well, you did. I mean, it was we're the same. It was beautiful. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Um, so I really want to get a TMI story out of you. And then if we've got time, I, I would love to touch upon um, the the impact of this this phase on relationships and in particular romantic relationships and primary partnerships, things like that. Because um, it's, you know, it definitely, I think that there was this, maybe you, you were telling me there's this statistic that like, yeah, a lot more divorces happen around menopause and that can be, it can be, you know, divorces that are really necessary and, and someone just has probably needed to break up with their partner for a long time, but it's not until menopause that that, um, hormone of, of, um, what did Jane, it was like the hormone of, uh, service and sacrifice, something along those lines. I thought there was another word too. Anyway, yeah, you know, disappears and all of a sudden you're like, what the like, fuck am I doing in this unhappy relationship? Yeah. Um, just, you know, I, but then and, and I feel the, like. The, I think what she sorry. said was you, you're not willing to take shit anymore. So whatever yeah. fan, nice word that she used is like you're just not willing to take any shit anymore. <laughs> Yeah, and then I reckon there's probably plenty of relationships that are worth saving and could be saved if, you know, we kind of understood what was going on hormonally and how that kind of influenced, you know, behaviour um, and how to communicate. So we can get into that 
before we wrap up. Excuse the interruption, my loves, but I'm shamelessly seeking reviews and five-star ratings for the potty because, as I'm sure you've noticed by now, it's pretty fab. And the more people who get to hear it, the more people it can help. Reviews and ratings help me curry favor with the algorithmic gods and get suggested to other listeners to check out. Plus, they make me feel really good and appreciated as I continue to pour my heart and soul into creating this baby for you. And I promise I don't maz over them or anything. I mostly just tuck them away for a rainy day when I'm filled with self-doubt and existential dread about being self-employed, which is fairly frequently. (laughs) So you see, leaving a review really does make a difference and it's an easy little act of support that you can take in just a minute or two by either going to Spotify and leaving five stars for the show or writing a written review and leaving five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Choose your poison, or if you're a real overachiever, you could do both. Whoa now. If you are writing a review, though, just be sure to only use G-rated words, because despite the fact that this is a podcast about sexuality, words like sex can be censored and your review won't actually show up. Lame. Anyway. Oh, oh, what was that? Oh, you're going to go do it right now while I wait. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great idea. May as well just quickly click that five-star button before we get on with it and, you know, like forget about it and get on with your day. Um, um, oh, I'm hearing them roll in. I'm hearing those five stars. <laughs> oh my God, I make myself cringe. Anyway, uh, thank you much, Lee. You're a total gem and I'll let you get back to the episode now. But for now, do you have a, another TMI story? We didn't do Get Pregnant and Die. You've been on the podcast so many times now. Let's just like, let's just roll out a TMI story. Do you know, I honestly thought that I might actually be able to get out of both because I was like, oh, I've, I've, done, I've done two. But then I listened to your other podcast and I was like, she's definitely going to ask me one. So I don't. I mean, it's my favorite bit. <laughs> know, amazing. And I actually shared this story on the internet recently. And I, you know, I thought it was like just a funny anecdote, but I didn't realize how like it made a lot of people laugh. It brought a lot of people joy. So I'm going nice. to tell it. Which is, it was in response to someone was horrified to find out that a lot of girls flush tampons and they're like, you can't do that. It blocks up toilets and think of the poor plumber who has to go in there like up to his shoulder to remove it or her shoulder to remove it. Um, and she was like, do, do you flush tampons? And I was like, well, I've never flushed a tampon. But <laughs> the other day, <laughs> the other day I removed a tampon and uh, wrapped it in wrapped it in some toilet paper as one does. And I was upstairs in the house here, and I live in the tropics, and so you don't want to put menstrual products in the bin too long <laughs> because they do definitely start to develop an odor when you live in in a warm, humid yeah. environment. You pretty much got to get those guys straight in the outside bin. <laughs> and so I wrapped it up and I was headed down the stairs to put it in the in the bin and then I remembered oh my 11 year old daughter I've got to wash her dance uniform because she's got dancing so I went into her bedroom and children don't put things away so of course I'm like where is she held this dance uniform and she's she's my um my eldest daughter and my youngest daughter will actually sort of put her clothes in in order a little bit but my eldest daughter just takes things off and I think tries to throw them as far away from each other as possible. So I'm trying to find her uniform and I put this wrapped tampon down on her dresser and, of course, promptly forgot about it, right? So I've picked up <laughs> picked up all her dance clothes, gone downstairs to wash them. 
I want to say as well here that my children are probably better educated about female reproductive health than a lot of adults. <laughs> you know? So they know all about it. periods, they know all about tampons, they know about um, fertility and all that stuff. And so anyway, she comes home from school later and I'm like, hey, babe, you've got to go up and get changed. Go go get changed and um, then come downstairs and I'll make you a snack. She's gone for ages and I'm like, I better go and find out what she's doing because she does have a tendency to vague off as well. So I've gone in to her room and I find her in a staring competition with this tampon, which by now the blood has like started to seep so through. True. Tool, right? She's <laughs> looking at it. And I'm like, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I put that down in here earlier. I forgot to put it in the bin. And she looks at me and she goes, what is it? <laughs> and I said a to her. A finger? <laughs> I, said to her, I said to her, it's just a tampon that I used before. And she looks so visibly relieved. I was like, totally. what, did you, what did you think it was? And, of course, she knows all about this stuff, but she's never seen a, a dirty sanitary or used sanitary product before. And so just like you, her little mind went to must be a severed finger. <laughs> totally. I mean, what else could it be, honestly? <laughs> <laughs> Whose fingers do you think Mom's I'm trying to <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that would have been horrifying. <laughs> Wow, was, I love it. Oh, it's so funny. But this is, you know, when she learned it was a town, she was like, oh, that makes sense. Like, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, uh, oh, dear. So that's my TMI story. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I and it kind of like makes me think of an episode that will be coming out soon um, with Dr. Tina Sellers about shameless parenting. And we talk about how to have the sex talk with your kids. And, it's, and her thing is like have – hundreds of little talks there's no like one birds and the bees chat it's like having so many talks that by the time they get up to a point so like you'd obviously already chatted about periods menstrual products you you'd prepared her she wasn't unfamiliar with these themes so all you had to do was say it's not a severed finger it's a tampon and she's like oh okay rather than like it's not a severed finger but also i have to tell you this thing that vaginas do and then go through this whole like horrifying realization that she had never do you know what I mean so she was already prepared so well done <laughs> and I want to add to that I know this is going off topic a bit but I just want to throw in there as a parent don't think oh well I'll you know I'll postpone these conversations I'll have them a bit later because once your kids mm. hit school you are only as good as the shittest parent in that class because yeah. you may have sheltered your children from violent video games or talks about sex or anything, but you have to parent as though they're going to go to school with someone whose parents are just hopeless. <laughs> because, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've actually yeah. heard, I actually heard something from Lily that she'd heard from a friend. I don't want to be all cryptic or anything. I don't want, I'm not going to go into it. Um, but yeah, a friend of hers had had an experience and had talked to Lily about it. And it was through this conversation uh about the seven finger <laughs> but then we started talking about other stuff and she's like oh yeah because my friend da, 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 and tells me the story and we were able to have a chat about it um and I was like whoa babe how did you feel about that she goes well you know you and I had spoken about some stuff so mm. so yes I, mm-hmm. it's it is so so important it's so important to talk to your kids yeah. and also if you haven't set and this segues into relationship communication so ha found way to nice make work. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't had those small conversations when they're little when they get to that age of 12 13 when they're naturally from an anthropological point of view starting to pull away from you so that they can become they can individuate and become 
separate from the family unit, they can go out and make their way in the world. They naturally, this is why teenagers think you're stupid because if they thought you had all the answers forever, they would never want to fly fly from the nest. And so if you're then going to sit down with a 13-year-old and be like, hey, we should talk about sex, they're just going to be like, oh, gross, like what kind Mm -hmm. of drugs have you been smoking while I'm at school? So it's all of these little conversations that you have along the way. And similarly, when you're in a relationship and then you're heading into reverse puberty, if you guys have had a good relationship up to that point where you've been able to have fights and stuff and realize that you could possibly communicate a little bit better but get through it because because your hormones stabilize, (laughs) you may find that the lid gets lifted on all of that during perimenopause because I hear so many stories about women who the rage just takes over and they scream and they say things to their one woman was like she left the house because she couldn't stop just these horrible things coming out of her mouth. So she left the house and then she was, you know, typing this message in the car. She's like, I'm too ashamed to go back and face him. I can't believe the things that came out of my mouth. (laughs) I know, right? Bless. So being able to communicate in a healthy way with your partner, first of all, being able to give them a heads up and be like, I might, Mm -hmm. I might act a bit crazy and I'm not crazy. It's just that I'm going through a second puberty um, Mm. to get, to have that line of communication open so that the man understands what's going on. Because I think so much of it's shrouded in secrecy, right? It's taboo still to talk about. Yeah. So understanding, having your partner, I've said man, but obviously partner, I believe the dynamic could be very different when you've got two women going through it. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, true. Absolutely. Mm. But certainly letting men know. Letting husband, yes, true. <laughs> letting husband having a period at the same time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Nah. Blessing in a curse, I imagine. I can imagine. Um, yeah, go on. I was just saying that um, looking into positive ways to communicate, again, before you need those tactics and strategies. Mm. And one, I said this was going to be some practical advice in this episode and one great thing I can recommend is the five love languages. Do you know about that? Yeah, yeah. It's really handy to know just because it gives you a bit of an insight into how the other person works and how you can communicate your love to them and how you can receive it as well. So, yeah, do you want to give people a quick rundown? I think that's a really good place to start because it's a good way if you went to your partner (laughs) – out of the blue, I was like, hey, I think we should talk about really good communication strategies for this relationship or, hey, let's go to counselling together just to see how each other ticks. You know, it might raise some red flags, but you can do this fun. It's a free online. I've obviously, like anything, you can go into it in a lot more detail. I think there's like a paywall for that, but you can do the free quiz online. And I think there's five love languages. And I feel like I, we might have even talked about this before on a different podcast, but basically they're things like quality time, uh, words, you know, so words of affirmation. I love you, words yeah. of affirmation. Do you know them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. List them off. <laughs> um, acts of service, uh, physical touch, and there's one more. What What have I already covered? Um, and gifts of appreciation. Oh, gifts what? of appreciation. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm oh, gonna... gifts. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was about to say, I'm going to guarantee that that's not one of your love languages because I always forget the ones that aren't mine. <laughs> that aren't mine and my, but my husband and I have opposite ones. 
So I have, I am, it's kind of embarrassing, but I am all about gifts of appreciation and acts of service. So I just like people to do stuff for me. Mm. and buy me presents whereas my husband is such a nicer person than I am he likes um physical touch and words of affirmation so he likes me to say I really love you and give him a cuddle whereas I'm like I did the dishes can't you tell how much I love you (laughs) because in my love language (laughs) you know doing the dishes is an act of service for the other person and Mm -hmm. so that's a really great place to start. It's also a fun place to start. And then from there, another resource that I would recommend is the work of Esther Perel on, again, this is why the love languages one is, is a good place to start because Esther Perel is best known for her work on infidelity, <laughs> but actually <laughs> she um, is a fabulous expert on just relational intelligence as well. So you can go and listen to some of her podcasts. I think she has a mm. masterclass these days. If anyone has a masterclass membership, she's got heaps of stuff online on YouTube. She's done TED Talks and stuff. So she's really um, a great resource as well for figuring out how to interact in a relationship and communicate mm. in a healthy and positive way. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, it's just so important, like the communication piece and also like, yeah, discovering little little things like the love languages to help you understand how the other person works, to help you understand how you work, how you give and receive love because they might be different from one another and so you're kind of like ships passing in the night and you think that you're, you know, expressing your love but the other person's not receiving it and what they're doing to express their love isn't landing for you and so there's this kind of frustration and I um, isolation that comes from not understanding that so doing things that help you understand one another better and obviously communication is like the number one and I'm constantly banging on about it but also like approaching it all from a standpoint of like it's not me against them I'm not having this experience and I'm fucking pissed off at them for not getting it um and being more supportive it's like okay like let's get on the same team let let's let our partners in on the experience and be vulnerable and be like, I'm a bit scared. I'm a bit all over the place. This is new territory for me. I'm feeling really strange and unusual. I'm having different sorts of like, um, behavior kind of appearing in my, in my like day to day. And, and that's, that's impacting the relationship. And like, I want to chat about how we can navigate this together. And like, can I get your buy-in? Can I, can I, you know, count on you to be on my side and to like stand by me if things get a bit crunchy? Um, And if they do, like, I'm also open to hearing your feedback and your experience so that we can make sure that, you know, we're kind of traversing this together in a really loving kind of thoughtful way. Um, And that's like any relationship, any stage would benefit from that, of course. But I think we probably can't just coast along ignoring things and sweeping them under the rug anymore. And that's why stuff comes to a head because the hormones desert us shit gets very real and all of a sudden any kind of rose-colored glasses that we may have been enjoying are whipped off um and it's a stark kind of landscape that is in front of you all of a sudden and so I think a lot of relationships don't survive that and some aren't supposed to that's probably a good catalyst for some breakups that needed to happen but then some you know could actually ride that out if we had the tools and if we really like put the energy and the effort into that a hundred percent yeah, a hundred percent. And that's, um, that then brings us to the, I think the last point really, which is, 
another thing that I encounter when I speak to these women is that there's this huge uh, disparity between the amount of sex that they feel like having and they want to have and the amount of sex that their partner wants to have. And I will say as well, because I don't want it to sound like all doom and gloom, I see a fair few posts where people are like, I'm kind of um, hesitant to post this because I can see that a lot of people are struggling with their sex drive, but I am just horny all the time. Like, what (laughs) the hell? I don't want my husband to think that I'm a crazy nympho. And I'm like, I don't think any husband of yours is going to worry. Uh, but it can go the other way. So you can actually get an increase in sex drive at this time of life. Mm. But commonly people say that they're really not interested in sex. And so that is almost like the cherry on the evil Sunday that you were just talking about. You know, you've got this, the, the hormones aren't there for you to just smooth things over and, you know, shut your mouth and keep on going or not even shut your mouth. Just let that one go through to the keeper, you know, and go about your business. Plus you, then you've got these, these surges and changes in hormones no good communication skills, no nervous system regulation, you know, so you can't just stop in the moment before you scream horrible things and take a deep breath because you don't have that muscle memory. And then the sexual dynamic in the relationship is off as well. So it's like this perfect storm. Mm. And it was Jane who quoted that statistic at you. You were saying before that there's a disproportionately high number of divorces in that perimenopausal menopausal age groups about 60 percent from memory is what she said so wow yeah it's pretty high so I kind of want to bat the ball back to you a little bit um about this I feel like this is more your area when it comes to there's a couple of concepts so I read and I recommend this book to everybody uh come as you are by Mm. Emily Nagoski is that her surname yeah 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 yeah. She talks about some fundamental concepts in there that are the brakes and the accelerator to sex. And mm. what is the other one that I was thinking about? Oh, yes. Responsive spontaneous. Spontaneous. Yeah. yeah. Spontaneous and responsive arousal and desire. So if you do you want to mm. touch on that quickly and then I can round out with talking about some of the the physical things that can change because the body does change and you might need to, you know, like use lube for the first time or there might be some supplements that you can mm. take to help with your vaginal health and I can finish on that note. Mm. But I'd really love to to hear from you on those two areas because I think mm. I think they're playing more of a role, particularly that brakes and accelerator, than any mm. kind of hormonal in- intervention. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like there's this kind of, it, there's a bit, and I, we debunk a few of these misconceptions and myths in the other menopause episodes because I feel as though it's blown way out of proportion that like you lose your sex drive when you're in menopause and da, da, da. And of course it can go in that direction. But what I would say is like, it's probably more about the lifestyle factors and, um, and those would be impacting your libido more than menopause itself. Um, and how you're experiencing menopause is so influenced by those other factors um that of course you know your libido gets caught up in that because they're very you know they're very similar the kinds of factors that will impact your experience of menopause and your experience of your libido um and I feel like I've covered so I did a whole episode on libido um with Eliza Rossi, like you should definitely, it's another one you should go back and listen to everyone. Um, and we kind of went into more depth on that. And I sort of feel like just given that we're kind of running out of time, I don't want to go too deeply into libido factors just because like it's a whole other topic, but I will just say like, it's really, it's really not so much the menopause that's responsible 
um, there's underlying, there's underlying factors. And yeah, like, you know, we have different kinds of arousal, spontaneous versus responsive. Most, you know, the majority of women have responsive arousal, which means that we don't just automatically feel like a horn bag and get turned on really easily and want to have sex without some kind of sexually relevant stimuli that actually, um, you know, sparks some interest and then arousal sort of responds to. Um, and so yeah, often think we think we've got of, low libidos. So Sorry. I was going to say a lot of women are waiting to feel horny to have sex, but actually mm. they need to begin to engage in sex in order to feel horny. Totally. Yeah. So we think we have like low libidos or we're not interested in sex, but actually it's just because we have responsive arousal um, as our default kind of arousal pattern. And we need some sexy kind of nice feeling things to be happening before our arousal processes kick in. And then we can feel horny and that will kind of like we can ride that wave. But um, that's why we might not initiate sex as often because we don't have that spontaneous desire to have sex and that horniness that's kind of fueling us to initiate like a lot of men do and the majority of men kind of have spontaneous arousal and you know it's not that's just rule of thumb like it's different for everyone and it can change throughout our lives um and lifestyle factors really do influence influence libido um but i'd highly recommend listening to the the libido episode if you want to delve more into that and the other um in the other menopause episodes there was there was some, I can't remember the exact study or stats that I cited, but I did a bit more research for those ones and um, kind of talked about how we all think that we lose our libido and sex drive in menopause, um, but the the stats around sexual uh, satisfaction and frequency and um, all of these kind of things are actually not like they don't plummet they actually don't drop in menopause we think that they do and you know there might be newer studies now i'm i'm gonna just fudge this go back and listen to the other episodes i swear i was more prepared um but i do mention some studies that are like hey actually sexual satisfaction is just as high if not higher after you've gone through menopause and there's a number of reasons for this that we talk about in in those episodes um so yeah, I kind of think that it's it's like menopause is the scapegoat. We're blaming it for all of this stuff, but actually all of those all of those things are due to our choices and our lifestyle factors um that would be creating those issues anyway with um, you know, and we're just not buoyed up anymore by the hormones that might mask the fact that these lifestyle factors are influencing us um and so you're just kind of left with what what's there and and what your lifestyle factors are actually doing to your you know your desire i suppose um yeah i think that's all i kind of want to say on that in terms of yeah massive and that's what i was going to say in terms of actionable steps for for that particular i think I wanted to talk about it to throw it in the mix because I wanted to highlight it as something that I see commonly where people are like, I don't want to have sex anymore. It must be the menopause or it must be peri. And I'm like, mm. no, I mean, you know, like it's part of a bigger picture, but there's, there's, it's more likely that yeah. you've just spent all week running around after a husband and family or your boss is a jerk or whatever it happens to be. Mm. And so 
sex is the last thing on your mind would be even if you weren't going through menopause. Well, that's it. Uh, that's what I was going to say. Sorry to cut you off. I was I was like, there was something else I wanted to mention. We like we don't feel like having sex when we're stressed, when there's like big transitions happening, when there's lots of change and like things are tumultuous or, you know, there's so many things that are happening at that stage in life that are not to do with menopause but more to do with like, you know, you were saying like, You've got aging parents. More people are dying around you. There's maybe money stress. There's like, you know, your kids are leaving home and there's just so much change and things are so, um, so transitory that, of course, sex is the last thing on your mind. And then, of course, you know, the kind of procreation driven urges have disappeared as well because you're not going to, you know, you're not fertile anymore and you're not going to procreate. So even, you know, even though that's not why you were having sex, like biologically, your body's a little bit less motivated to have sex. Definitely. It has to, there's, there's another motivation that you have to look for at that time. And that's again, covered in um, the episode that you did with not Jane, it was with with Heidi. uh, Heidi. So I'm sure you'll link these in the show notes, but I would say Mm -hmm. that in terms of actionable steps for this particular topic, if a listener feels that the sex drive is waning, whether you're in Perry or not, go check out the libido episode that you did, uh, the episode with Heidi. And then I recommend that book, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. That's a fantastic resource as well. So, Hey, me again. If you'd like to support the potty and you've already given it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on, I want to mention that you can buy some really dope merch from the website and get yourself a labia lounge tote, tea, togs. Yep, you heard that right. I even have labia lounge bathers or a cute fanny pack if that'd blow your hair back. So uh, if fashion isn't your passion, though, you can donate to my Buy Me A Coffee donation page, which is actually called Buy Me A Soy Chai Latte because... I'll be the first to admit, I'm a bit of a Melbourne cafe tosser like that. And yes, that is my coffee order. (laughs) You can do a once-off donation or an ongoing membership and sponsor me for as little as three fat ones a month. And I also have a Sunroom profile over on the Sunroom app, as I've mentioned. And I also offer one-on-one coaching and online courses that'll help you level up your sex life and relationship with yourself and others in a really big way. So every bit helps because it ain't cheap to put out a sweet podcast uh, into the world every week out of my own pocket. So I will be undyingly grateful if you support me and my biz financially in any of these ways. And if you like, I'll even give you a mental BJ with my mind from the lounge itself. Saucy. And, um, I'll pop the links in the show notes. Thank you. Later. Um, however, that being said, estrogen <laughs> estrogen is a fabulous hormone <laughs> and it does have an impact on vaginal health. And as the levels of estrogen decline, we can see some issues uh, cropping up in that area. One of them is the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which is a really bad, I hope they, they used to call it vaginal atrophy, which was terrible. Now they've come up with GSM, which I think is equally terrible because it's so vague. You're like, what is that? Unless you, you know, know a little bit about anatomy, you'd be like, huh? Um, and that is an umbrella term that encompasses things like an increase in recurrent UTIs, uh, pain with intercourse, vaginal atrophy. So you can have pain with intercourse, or you can just have pain generally walking around, inflammation of the tissues in that area. Uh, increased instances of bacterial vaginosis, which is where the pH balance Mm -hmm. um, of the vagina shifts. And again, you can check out the episode that you and I did on thrush UTIs 
um, and BV as well for more information there. Yeah. But these are these are very real things that people have to deal with, but they're not insurmountable. So what the, the key takeaway I'll give people is daily moisturizing of those tissues. Jane touched on this, that people go, oh, you know, dry vagina. Your vagina is going to dry up. And she, she was, I loved her uh, analogy. She was like, no, put your finger inside your mouth, right? Like it's not dry in there. Vagina is the same. What happens is that because of the effect of estrogen on the tissues of the vagina, they become less plump. And so you're a little bit more prone to tearing and, you know, there can be some issues around that. So moisturizing as you do your face every day, we're like, oh, I don't want that to get a little bit, you know, less plump. So we're spending a fortune on our face. Just a daily vaginal moisturizer as well. The Yes brand do a good one. There's also one called Olive and B. You need to be careful with the types of products that you're using down there. Yeah, they need to have the right very. pH and be very, you know, people like coconut oil, so much coconut oil. No, it's so antimicrobial. Uh, some people can tolerate it, but it's not my like it's not my first go-to. Yeah. I do like emu oil for that, but I yeah. think yeah, the Olive B and the Yes brand are two really good commercially. The cow butter is great. Yep. Um, so daily yeah. moisturizing was shown in in certain studies to be as effective as vaginal application of estrogen. So it's just a case of helping those tissues out the same way we do with our face that is exposed to the sun. So a daily moisturizer. Sea mm-hmm. uh, buckthorn oil as a supplement can be very good for the tissues of the vagina. They, people might find that taking a women's specific strain probiotic. Uh, in Australia, there's the Life Space Women's, which is a good one. And they, they have um, strains that are beneficial to vaginal health, so they can help kind of ward off those instances of bacterial vaginosis that can that can crop up and yeast infections as well. So um, I won't say too much more there because, as you know, I'm not a, not a massive fan of people self-prescribing. But if you do have any of those sort of issues, the genitourinary syndrome of menopause is a progressive condition. So that means it's not if you are experiencing symptoms, they're not just going to magically go away. They will continue to worsen. Mm-hmm. So it's really in your best interest to speak to someone who has the expertise in that area and never underestimate the importance of lube. Totally. Totally. And like I make I make a homemade lube. We're gonna launch it soon actually. And there's this kind of uh product I've been making that are like little yoni pearls that are um kind of like suppositories so you pop them up your vagina they hydrate um they kind of moisturize the tissues but then they also lubricate so you can use them daily just for like you know uh, vaginal um, mucosal membrane thinning and vaginal dryness or whatever but you can also use it as a lube so and there's products like that out there on the market mine are not currently on the market but if you did want some you could contact me and I'm sure I could whip up a batch Um, but yeah yoni pearls that are like specially formulated for postmenopausal and perimenopausal um, women are really great really great and they don't have any like rubbish in them we have some beautiful ones that chinese medicine practitioners like myself Mm. make up because you can use them with herbs as well and yeah yeah and and we use as a base for that pessary um the cacao butter oh yeah pessary i called it a suppository suppository pessary pessary (laughs) yeah pessary is in the front suppositories in the back yeah and yeah so i mean i think that was 
Look at me. That was me on track. Holy shit. I'm sorry, guys. No, it's gone a bit over time. We were really trying to put a time limit on it this time. But fuck, I mean, they're big topics and, you know, so many tangents. (laughs) So many throwbacks to other episodes in this one. God damn it. Thank you so much, Joanna. Fucking amazing. I always love chatting to you and you're just a wealth of knowledge. So hopefully this provided people with some insights and some tangible, practical little tips that they can start applying um, did you have anything you want to leave people with or um, anything that you've got o- online available at the moment w- we want to direct people to in terms of your work? Uh, I would love it if people would jump on my email list actually because mm. I was thinking, oh, Freya's probably going to sweetly ask me if I've got a nice resource for people in perimenopause. And I actually, you know, the old like one picture <laughs> top five this, I actually don't have anything prepared for Perry. I've got um, I've got a good sleep one. If anyone who is in perimenopause is struggling with sleep, you can go and go mm. to my website and download the sleep one because that's that would be really good to tell you everything you need to get in place first before you then go and look at, mm. you know, sleeping tablets or whatever it happens to be. So yeah. uh, that that's a relevant download that will then pop you on my mailing list. But you can go to the homepage of my website, joannamack.com, and sign up for my email newsletter. And I really do – that's the thing I'm most consistent on because I enjoy writing. I've only just kind of started – becoming consistent because I set all of it up pre-pandemic and yeah then I moved to Mexico and blah 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 but that's that's the thing that I really enjoy and I commit to sending an email every every Sunday for me so it's Monday for your side of the world and it's it has extra stuff you know not I don't just link to all the things that I've put up online it's got extra stuff in it and you can also follow me online on instagram i'm joanna underscore mcmegan i'm just double checking that you can that my yeah so you can sign up to my if you go to the home page of my website scroll down the bottom it's the monthly newsletter sign up there and that's where i reckon i direct people this time beauty well i'll put those links in the show notes as well so it's just easy for people to click straight through to your website definitely follow joanna on insta as well um and yeah thanks for sticking with us this long if you've if you've gotten this far (laughs) and that's it darling hearts thank you for stopping by the labia lounge your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double l action next time and in the meantime if you'd be a dear and subscribe share this episode or leave a review on itunes then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that my dear is a downright act of sex positive feminist activism And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyagraph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT and I seriously hope you're following me on that because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.